This morning's reading is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. If you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you're unable to stand, join us now in lifting your hearts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country, to their own country, by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrea. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you and open God's word uh, with you this morning. If you haven't already, let me invite you to, to open your copy of God's word uh, to Matthew chapter 2, where uh, this morning we're looking at the fulfillment uh, in the context of history of the, the promise that we looked at last week when we examined uh, and studied Ma Micah uh, chapter 5 last week um, together. Uh, Christmas is a time that confronts us, uh, that divides us, uh, where we come in with differing emotions about the season. Some of you uh, love it. Others of you hate it. For some, it's a time of delight and joy. For others, it's a time of great sorrow and sadness and lament as you consider Christmas. 
Uh, this morning, um, we remember that diversity of opinions, of responses, uh, rightly so, because that has always been the case uh, when we remember the one that we remember at Christmas, that Jesus has always come as a dividing force uh, that causes us and demands a response from us. So this morning, as we go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask him uh, to help us respond in a way that reflects his grace in our lives this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, your grace. And Father, this morning, I just pray uh, as our preacher for the day, Lord, would you help us uh, to see and to savor you? Um, Would you help me, Lord, uh, to point people uh, to the beauty of your grace that has come to rescue um, sinners and rebels and to make them your friends? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is a powerful passage for us to consider because it it really does put before us the reality that Jesus invites us uh, to make a a, a response, uh, to choose a path, to either receive him like Herod or uh, to reject him like Herod or to receive him uh, like the Magi, to either have a heart of faith, a response of faith and trust, or a heart uh, that is hard that rejects him this morning. And that's the choice that's before us this morning that we'll consider as we uh, look through this passage as an opportunity to see ourselves within it, to either identify with Herod or to identify uh, with the Magi. This morning, I want us to consider what it means to respond uh, to the news, to the gift of Christmas, to the arrival of Jesus, whether through faith or unbelief and the beauty of the Savior that's offered to us. Uh, Herod, in many ways, is a powerful picture of what it means to reject the arrival of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, is born in Bethlehem, as he's foretold in Micah 5, and uh, uh, Herod is uh, informed of Jesus' arrival through the unlikely um, arrival of these interesting guys that come from the East that we call Magi. Uh, In our Christmas stories and sometimes even our songs, we think of the Magi as, as three kings that have come from afar, uh, because of the three gifts that they offer. But the Magi were most likely, in a, a, not just three, uh, but an entire entourage that enters into the city and gets Herod's attention. And as they come, they come asking a question that is a threat uh, for Herod, asking, what, well, they have come to find this, uh, this one who has been born king of the Jews. Uh, Herod's response to this uh, inquisition, this question, is one of, of unbelief and rejection, one uh, that seeks to suppress the truth. He uh, is nervous, he's troubled, the city is troubled, and so he goes to uh, his advisors in the way of God's word. He goes to the scribes and asks them, uh, what does the Bible say? Where is the Savior supposed to be born? And of course, they look uh, to Micah chapter 5 and give, them the, give him the answer that we studied uh, last week. All throughout the scripture, uh, in the Old Testament, we're told that when the Messiah would come, that the Gentiles, that those that are not Jews, would come and they would see him, they would behold him, they would be drawn to investigate his glory and be welcomed into the Messiah's kingdom. And now here, uh, like snow in July, is this amazing thing that was promised. Um, the Magi had traveled, uh, as many scholars note, some 1,000 miles, uh, probably 40 miles a day. You can imagine the journey and do the math yourself as they go and seek out this one who had been promised to them. The Magi were royal advisors, astrologers, 
who studied the stars and also uh, astronomers who studied the stars and astrologers who studied their meaning. And they would have been familiar through the way in which God had placed his people even through the exile in their midst, the promise of Numbers 24, 14 through 17. That in promising the Messiah, this ruler who would come, who would have a scepter, that a star would come out of Jacob and a scepter would rise out of Israel. Having seen this star, this phenomenon, uh, they recognize God's work in the world. And with the light, the truth that they receive, they seek him out to try to find him, that they might worship him. Well, in contrast to the Magi's worship, Herod's heart is one of rejection that wants to suppress the truth that even his own advisors have told him. As these Magi show up, as these promises come true, he wants to suppress the truth and ignore it. It's a heart of unbelief. And ultimately, it's a heart that only suppresses the truth, but a heart of self-deception. You know, it's interesting to think about um, Herod and his his antics, his strategy to try to suppress the arrival of the, of the Messiah, to try to suppress the news of the Messiah and even the insanity of it. In many ways, it just, it doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, after all, last week we studied Micah uh, 5 together and we, we recognized the many ways in which God time and time again has been orchestrating history in a way to fulfill his promise of grace that for 700 years God had been working through nations and kingdoms that had come and had gone. And, and now here is the arrival of Magi on the scene uh, coming to worship the Messiah, that Scripture is coming true. And, and out of all of that, Herod thinks that he can actually stop the plans of God, doesn't he? It's the insanity of sin. If the Messiah who has really come, then of course he's going to come. It's an absurdly arrogant attempt to stop the impossible task of what God has sent in the world through the birth of his son. It's insanity. And yes, that's the heart of sin, isn't it? To try to stop what we can't stop, to prevent the hand of God as if we had any ability to do so. It's a heart of self-deception. It's a heart that's hard to suppress the truth of God's word, of his promises. And it's a heart of self-preservation. When we look at the atrocity that Herod is willing to commit, it's, it's hard for so many of us to fathom, right? That we would, that we would kill these innocent, un, these young children, two years of age and under, in the city to try to stop what God has promised that he was always going to do. How would anybody go to that length? Michael Green is a, a New Testament scholar, great church historian. I love the way that he articulates the way in which even the, the grotesque, brutal nature of, of Herod's sin in killing these young babies, these young boys, is actually consistent with what we know of him from history. He writes this, Sometimes people have wondered if Herod could have been so bestial as to destroy all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. Usually such people have been unaware of Roman history, for Herod could be a monster. To be sure, there's no independent record of this particular atrocity, but it is mild in comparison with some of Herod's other massacres. He slaughtered the last remnants of the Hasmonean dynasty of the Jewish high priestly kings who had ruled before him. He executed more than half the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 court officers out of hand for no reason. He executed his own Hasmonean wife, Mariame, her mother, Alexandra, and his sons, Finally, as he lay dying, he arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled in the Hippodrome and killed as soon as his own death was announced. 
A man as ruthless cruelty and fanatical neurosis without any competition. It's quite in character that he should order the execution of the male children in Bethlehem. It's not a big place. There probably would have only been 30 or so of them. Their deaths would not have made a ripple on the history of the day. That's the character of Herod. On the one hand, we, we look at the, what's often called by biblical scholars the slaughter of the innocents, and we ask, why, right? How? How could anybody do this? Uh, where is God in the midst of this? What kind of person could ever go to such lengths to preserve his own place and his own power who could feel uh, such a threat by a baby uh, being born in Bethlehem? Um, some of you are probably familiar with the name Adolf Eichmann. Um, Eichmann was one of the primary architects of the Nazi death camps, including uh, having the responsibility of directing logistics of the mass deportation of Jews to the ghettos, to the extermination camps in German-occupied uh, Eastern Europe. After the war, Eichmann fled to Argentina, where he assumed a false identity and worked for Mercedes-Benz in Argentina until 1960 when he was captured by Israeli oper operatives and expedited to Israel. 1961, he was tried in an Israeli court on 15 criminal charges, including crimes against humanity and war crimes. And in 1962, the facilitator and manager of this extermination of millions of people was found guilty and executed by hanging. At the trial, Eichmann sat in a bulletproof glass booth, and in the proceedings, the prosecution presented over 1,500 war documents and called 90 witnesses that who, who had survived the Nazi death camps, one of whom was a man named Yahil Deher, who upon completing the reading of his own written statement in the trial, Deher looked up from where he was seated and instantly, uh, directly directing his gaze at Eichmann, rose from his chair, mumbled something, and then fainted and fell to the ground. Twenty years later, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes, some of y'all are familiar with that news program, uh, did a story about Eichmann and asked him what made him faint that day on the witness stand. Denur responded, When I saw Eichmann, I realized that he was just a man, that he was just like me, that there was no difference between us. And that meant that I was capable of the very thing that he did, and I collapsed because I saw my reflection in him. You know, it's incredible to, to consider the Bible's teaching on the nature of sin, on the nature of a sin-hardened heart to the promise and the arrival of the Messiah that we know as Jesus, because the, the teaching of the Bible is that within all of us, there is, a, there is a Herod in seed form in every heart. Within all of us, there's the, the idea that we would desire to suppress the truth, as Romans says, that, that the righteousness of God is revealed against all mankind who knew about God and yet suppressed the truth of God. All of us want to suppress the truth of the Lord in the nature of our own sin. We all seek to preserve our own place in the world. We, we see the, the promise of the gospel as a threat to that which makes us comfortable, and it unnerves us. It puts us in our place. I don't know if you can see a, a Herod in your own heart. I'm sure many of you would think this morning that you would never go to the lengths to do what Herod has done. And perhaps, perhaps you wouldn't. But perhaps you can also see some of those same characteristics in your own heart this morning at the arrival of Jesus. Jesus who would disrupt your own comfort, 
your own idea of yourself, your own agenda for your own life as this king who puts you off your throne as he arrives into the world. As we consider responding to Jesus, not through a heart of unbelief or hardness, but a heart of faith, we also begin to see why. This morning, if our hearts break at the atrocity of the slaughter of the innocents, of the, the actions of Herod in the world, we're reminded not just of this particular scenario, of this particular casualty, but all of the other casualties that we experience in a world of misery and sin, don't we? So many of us have also had experiences where we wonder, where is God and what has he done and, and why has he allowed this? And is he indifferent? Is he distant? Well, Matthew would actually tell us this morning that God is not distant, that he's not indifferent. In fact, that he cares and he joins us in a world of weeping at the results of sin. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 18, where we're there in verse 17. Matthew uh, sets it up in response, gives us a glimpse into the heart of God when he writes, this was fulfilled what was spoken. Thus, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah when he writes, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children as she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, it's probably been a while for many of you that you've, you've looked at the, the book of Jeremiah and studied that together. But the, the passage uh, that Matthew quotes for us this morning is the passage that refers to the exile of people from, uh, from Jerusalem after they were conquered by Babylonia and they would be marched out of the city on their way through a city about five miles north in Ramah on their way to live as exiles in a foreign land under the conquering uh, armies of an oppressive uh, nation. And as they do so, Rachel, the, the, the mother, metaphorically, of the people of Israel, is pictured weeping for her children who have, who have died, many in the city, through the conquest and then sent off into a foreign land. And it's a way of, of, of Matthew quoting the Old Testament to say, God is not indifferent to the tears of his people. God is not absent or indifferent to the tears of his people in response to a broken world. He cares, he sees, he's present, he knows, and he is with us. In the same way, we would see this throughout the life of Jesus, throughout the New Testament, as Jesus would enter into the tears and the mourning and the brokenness of a broken, sin-cursed world to bring healing, but also empathy, as he would embody the call to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn, and to enter in with us. The feelings that so many of you perhaps feel acutely even this this morning in this season and you know what's so beautiful about the messiah who was promised to come is not only would he enter into our tears but he would also offer to wipe them away uh, one of the the conventions uh, in the writing of scripture especially in the new testament when the new testament quotes the old testament so often what the authors are doing is whenever they quote one part they're not just quoting that one part but they're quoting that one part in reference to the whole such that when Matthew quotes uh, Jeremiah 31 in this particular verse, he's not only thinking of these particular verses of Jeremiah 31, but of those verses in their greater context in Jeremiah 31, where there we are told that God is not only a God who observes our mourning and enters into it, but one who actually turns that, that mourning and that, that sadness into joy. 
If you want to look this morning at uh, Jeremiah 31, we'll start uh, in verse 15, the verses that he quotes. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, and yet she refuses to be comforted for her children because they're no more. And yet the Lord then goes on to say in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice for weeping and your eyes for tears. Well, why? For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children will come back to your own country. And why is that? Well, it's because the Lord will provide a deliverer for them, the Messiah who would come, the King who would come, who would return God's people to himself. The Messiah is, is worthy of our worship because he's willing to step into the brokenness of this world that we inhabit, to weep with us, to cry with us, to mourn with us. Uh, today, so many studies have been done on, on why people aren't having kids and all over the world and the sort of decline of population, especially in, in particular in Western countries. And so often the reason that people have given is, is posed as a rhetorical question of who in the world would want to bring a child into a world like this? Maybe some of you have asked yourselves that question at some point in time. Who would want to bring a child into a world like this? And yet it's exactly that world that our God would be willing to give his own son to be the savior of it. As he would send Jesus on our behalf to enter into our sadness that he might bring us his joy. And how, how is that? By being the king of the Jews, he would save his people. Uh, Matthew seems to waste nothing in the writing of, of the New Testament, of his gospel. And it's powerful for us to consider together that the, the next time that we would see the display, the declaration that Jesus, the one the Magi had come, is indeed the king of the Jews, is when those words would actually be mounted, that it would be posted above his head on the cross where he would die for the sins of his people. That Jesus came to enter into our sadness, to bear our sin, to be the king of his people, that he might redeem us from our sin. And for that reason, he's worthy of our worship. Uh, the Magi are an interesting, uh, an interesting group, uh, aren't they? Uh, they come from a foreign place uh, on little knowledge. I want you to think about this. Uh, the contrast that they provide for us in the picture they are of a heart of faith. Uh, on the one hand, the Magi uh, seem to know far less than their counterparts in Jerusalem. Uh, the scribes that are, that are consulted, the sort of the experts in the word of God, they, they know all of this stuff, don't they? Uh, when Herod comes to them and says, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They don't have to send out a search party to search the city. They just have to search the scriptures because they know exactly where to turn. Oh yeah, turn to Micah 5. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And yet these sort of answer men who know all the right answers do absolutely nothing, do they? I mean, imagine that. Oh yeah, the Messiah who was promised to come. I know that Bible answer. I, think I can pass that Bible quiz. He's going to be in Bethlehem, just a few miles away. But I'm not going to go. And yet here are these magi, these Gentiles, these outsiders, who have come to hear the truth of God through a terrible tragedy of God exiling his people and planting them there so that they could share the good news of, of God's word with them. And based on what seems to be little knowledge of the Bible, they have great pursuit. 
They travel 800 miles, 1,000 miles, 40 miles a day. Great journey to pursue what they know, and God honors it. As God preserves them and protects them through dreams and leads them to the one that they seek. These magi give what is probably the best that they could provide. I know some, some folks look at the, the gifts and try to connect that uh, to predictions around Jesus and his person and his work. But at the very least, what I would say to you is this, is these are the greatest, most expensive things that they could offer. The most worthy gifts for the most worthy king as they bow and they prostrate themselves before Jesus and they worship him. Uh, this, this, this past week, I got to hang out uh, with Josh and April and uh, we were hanging out at their house, and it's just been a while since I was, I've been around a baby. Uh, I like babies. Um, they're so cute. They're so small, and they're so tiny, and, you know, they just—you just can't help it. I love holding babies. Just anyway, fact about Michael Craddock. I'm a baby holder. And, um, and I just have to say to you that even this week, sort of reflecting and wrestling with this text and thinking about God's Word— um, and, and holding the newest uh, little super cute little miles in my hand, um, I couldn't help but think about the picture of the Magi. I mean, here are these, these royal diplomats, these advisors of power, these controllers of, of people who come in with their royal entourage and disrupt the city and cause a ruckus. And when they find Jesus, these grown men literally, I mean, just think, like just bow in worship and in adoration to a baby who can't do anything for himself yet. And yet they're willing to humble themselves because in contrast to the king of the Jews, the fake king of the Jews, the temporary king of the Jews with a hard heart, they're willing to rather than suppress the truth to embrace it and rather to protect themselves and preserve themselves to humble themselves and to surrender themselves in worship to the king because they recognize that he is worthy and he has come I think for us this morning wherever you are in your sort of spiritual in your journey of discovering who Christ is and whether you're new to the faith or old to the faith or you're newly investigating or you're just sort of hardened or wherever, God has you here this morning for a reason. And Jesus has come into the world and Christmas has broken in, even in our sort of culture with all of its crazy decorations. At the heart of it all remains a Savior who demands a response. And he invites us uh, to worship him, to celebrate him. Even in a world that's broken and filled with tragedy and tears, Jesus enters in that he might turn our joy into laughter and rejoicing, that he might save hardened sinners. And the invitation for this morning is, will you receive him? Will you reject him? Or will you receive him? For he alone is worthy.